I'll be reading our scripture passage of this morning from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let us pray. Father God, we come before your word this morning a word that you proclaim to us, that every part of it is good for us, that it helps build us up, that helps edify us, that is, it's relevant throughout all time, all generations, all peoples. And so we approach this book of the Bible that often, Lord, your followers either are often too cavalier in how they approach it or too fearful to approach it at all. And yet, you have said the fullness of your word is good for us. And so as we look to your word this morning, we pray that you bless it through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with a thought experiment. Let's go back into the last hundred years of history. So a hundred years ago, pretty much to the date... The United States was just emerging out of the First World War. It was it had just endured the Spanish flu, a great pandemic. It was about to be made to face the Great Recession, a great impoverishing moment in U.S. history. And Christians at that time wondered, is this the end? Could this be the end? Let's go 20 more years into the future. War has now broken out in Europe. Nazism is, is quickly taking over continental Europe. Stalin and Hitler have currently aligned themselves. Soon will be that great morning or tragic morning, that day of infamy where Pearl Harbor is bombed. We will see a, a world at war. We'll see extermination of Jews in concentration camps. And Christians at that time, they wondered... Could this be the end? 
Let's go 20 more years into the future. We're now in the 60s. The Russians have just launched this thing called Sputnik into the air, a satellite. They apparently can watch us at all hours of the day. There, there is a Cold War going on. There is uh, a civil rights struggle throughout the United States. There's segregationism in the South. There's, there's great um, cultural moments taking place. And Christians at the time wondered, could this be the end? Let's go 20 more years into the future. The Cold War has just kind of settled on the reality of mutually assured destruction. However, there's a new leader in Russia. His name is Mikhail Gorbachev. He seems to have the mark of the beast on his forehead. Or something to that matter. In some, some preaching circles' minds. There's, you know, we've had Iran taken over. The former empire of Persia taken over by a group of radical Muslims, and then the basically first day of Reagan's presidency, they finally released the hostages. And you had Christians wonder, could we be close to the end? Let's go 20 more years into the future. Morning, September 11th, 2001. An evil, unlike this nation, unlike we've ever seen, cuts into a single morning, and changes reality for us. Where all of a sudden, the U.S. has decided to fight an axis of evil, to uh, have a war on terror. And Christians wondered, could this be the end? Now let's go 20 more years into the future. And of course, nothing's going on right now, right? Nothing's going on at the moment in, in history. We don't have COVID. We haven't had the situation in Afghanistan. We haven't had um, kind of civil rights types of struggles or civil strife kinds of struggles in the streets. Uh, we have a polarization of America that is unique in its history. And so, before we even get into this text, we have to wonder. We have to wonder about the nature of this kind of prophecy and other kinds of prophecy that we encounter in especially the New Testament. Because there's kind of this, there's kind of a couple ways that you can look at prophecy like Revelation. And one kind of way has been very popular in American circles. And it's kind of this futurist that Revelation is only talking about a future time period. And that people basically go through these moments and pastors become popular by saying, yes, I think this might be the end times. And then eventually a Monday morning quarterback comes in um, and basically says, oh, no, no, because this didn't happen and this didn't happen, uh, it, we should have never really thought that. And if that's the only way you kind of look at this book, if you look at this book with the newspaper headlines in one hand and the Bible in the other, you're, you're going to make a mistake when it comes to this book. It's not healthy for us as Christians to look at prophecy and say, we have it all figured out. The, the New Testament overwhelmingly throughout its books, throughout the Gospels, the Pauline epistles, the other epistles, uh, and in Revelation makes clear that we as Christians living in the age after Christ always need to be ready. 
We always need to be ready for the second coming of Christ. That, and, and basically that none of us know the hour. That's just a biblical truth. And so we shouldn't just try to make guesswork of this book. But I also do want to make another quick point. And it is this. When Jesus first came, there was all sorts of biblical scholars. There were all sorts of... Um, in Israel. And how many of them were ready for the first coming of Jesus? How many of them, even though we had hints of where we knew where He was going to be born, we knew where... How he would be, how he would come through a virgin birth. How many of them were ready? I mean, the only time the scholars basically figure out that Jesus has come is when the pagan wise men come, and they kind of inform them, "Hey, hey, this has happened. This has taken place." And so, if that's how Christ came in the first moment, why do we think we can make perfect guesswork out of this book and other books like it, and absolutely be ready for the exact moment? That's not the understanding of the New Testament. The understanding of the New Testament is we should always be ready. Even in one sense, borrowing from the previous text that we preached together, Ephesians chapter 6, we always should have our armor on. And so, I don't want you to think uh, the purpose of this book is just to make guesswork in the future. I actually think if you come to this book and you honor really the first eight or nine verses, that you'll understand this book tells you not to do that. It will tell you to avoid that. Don't, in the other uh, 396 verses, make guesswork out of it. You're misunderstanding the first eight verses. I've counseled a lot of people about this book. And and what I often just tell them is, go back and read the first eight verses. The greater purpose of this book is to help us in those waves of history we just looked at. We just consider looking back in a hundred years. The cycles of birth pains, as Jesus calls them in this gospel. And this book started with seven churches in Asia that were going through a difficult time, a difficult period, and they were going through a moment of birth pains. And John says, basically, these present writings will help them in their, that moment. But also that number seven is a number that is constantly used in this book. And it's to show also to talk to us, to the fullness of the Christian community that would follow those seven churches as a worldwide Christian community that spans different eras, that spans different ages. This letter begins by promising the original audience in, modern, in ancient Asia that revelation was relevant to their life. And it was in Turkey, if you're wanting to know. That in an immediate sense, 2,000 years ago, those people in modern Turkey, in Asia, would be blessed by this book. That's what the book begins with promising. But again, by extension, it also still blesses us. The Apostle John, and yes, I take the position that the Apostle John is the John mentioned in this letter, but the Apostle John makes clear several times in this letter, and starting in verse 9, that the tribulation has already begun as he writes this letter. And so if you just think a tribulation is going to be the last seven years, you're not listening to the Apostle John. He sees that a battle has begun with the ascension of Christ, with the coming of Christ, with the death of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. A battle has begun. 
with that coming that uh, is active at that moment. You know, the worst bat- fighting that went on in World War II, the most brutal, most hostile fighting in a lot of ways was after D-Day. After that land Normandy. After the Nazis already knew they were going to lose by that point. And so they, had, they threw caution to the wind. The, the numbers that would die after the landing, and there's one sense that this book is telling us, Christian community, yes, the king has come. The king is seated on his throne. And yet the fight will rage until this age closes. So, this is a book that speaks to all ages. So there are a lot of views of this book. There are views of this book that the book has already all taken place in the past. That's called a preterist kind of view or a, a full preterist view. There's views of this book, and actually this is the most popular view with really any theologian think of uh, beyond 200 years ago. Uh, so you're talking about Thomas Aquinas, you're talking about Augustine, you're talking about Bernard of Claveaux, Calvin, Luther, these kinds of theologians. A history view, they saw that history was being fulfilled, that this was talking about the history of the church age. And then there is the view that we've already kind of mentioned, the future view. And I would actually submit to you that this book, in one sense, is a book that talks about the past, talks about the present or the history of the church age, but also does talk about the future. This is the book of the God who was, who is, and is to come. This is the book of the ongoing battle of this church age. Also, when it comes to this book, this book in the, uh, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament more than any other book of the New Testament. Over 400 times, it quotes the Old Testament. And so what does this book assume you have a really good understanding of? The Old Testament. A lot of people, how they approach this book, they don't, they don't appreciate that fact. You know, yesterday, my brother, Bruce, and I were all sitting down at the oyster picnic, taking a moment together, and my brother, as uh, we parks like to do, kind of said a random line. And uh, he was quoting a movie. And I had no idea what he was talking about, but he said it when Bruce got up and was leaving the table. And uh, he goes, and I'm just kind of looking at him like, what did you just say? And he goes, you don't know the Chevy Chase movie? And I'm like, no, I don't know what movie you're talking about. And he goes, he goes well, do you think Bruce knows the movie? And I, I told him, you know, Bruce, Bruce knows a lot of movies. So I, I'm guessing, did you know the quote that he was quoting? Oh, no, we're not going to say it. Anyways, <laughs> no, no, so... I love your body, Larry. I had no idea what this was, but he was hoping it was so random in the moment. Well, I'm glad you you answered the question. So I said, you know, maybe Bruce knew, but I had no idea what he was referencing. In one sense, if you haven't done the hard work of appreciating the and understanding how the Old Testament references to this book are being used, if you don't know the Old Testament well, you're going to be like me, hearing my brother say, I love your bar- body, Larry, uh, <laughs> to, to Bruce, and just sit there and go, why did you say that? Um, no idea. You're going to miss things in this book. That's a long intro, I know. So, it's my conviction, but really my conviction that the book tells us. This book tells us. 
It is about the God who is, who was, and is to come. Past, present, and future this book talks about. So there are those groups that will say it's only past, only history, or only future. And I actually think, in one sense, I, I like to read all of them, and I think all of them have touched on an aspect of the more full truth that this book is for all generations of Christians to benefit from. So, with that, let's begin the text. Verse 1 reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to the, his servant John. Now first, whose revelation is this according to John? Is it John's revelation? No, it's Jesus Christ's revelation. What does that mean? First, it means that this prophecy is going to offer to us more than the Old Testament prophecies did. In one sense, when we're in those Old Testament books, like Ezekiel, like Isaiah, like Daniel, um, God, in one sense, has an aspect of a veil over Old Testament prophecy. We, we know a Savior's coming. We know an Emmanuel's coming. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to come in Bethlehem. But we don't know who is that answer to history. We, there are even hints that he will be the God-man in, for instance, Isaiah. And yet, Revelation begins with saying that the advent of Christ has allowed, in one sense, Jesus to reveal far more prophecy to the biblical church than has ever been revealed to before. That God now is going to make things so clear about who is the hero of history, what he has done, what he is, will do, and what he is doing in the moment through after the advent of Jesus Christ. And when will this revelation of Jesus Christ begin to take place? According to the first verse, what does John say to the seven churches of Asia? He says, soon. 2,000 years is not soon, if you only guess into the future. It's soon for an ancient church of Rome. And so it's a book that, again, connects to the past. And in verse 2, John continues, and he reveals that John, through the power of Jesus, was able, through the word and testimony of Jesus, to see something that he was never able to see before. The Word of God does that, by the way. The testimony of Christ does that. There is a sense in which we have the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, and it begins with God creating life through the power of His Word. His word going forth, and we see in that creation, wherever his word extends, it brings life. And in one sense, we as a church, given the Great Commission, before Jesus went to his ascension on the throne, he tells us to go share a life-giving word with others. Share that word so that we might bring forth life. We might be a part of God's creating power. And so this word... John is saying in one sense, creates new life and uh, where it did not exist earlier. It doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with things when we receive the Word of God, but it gives life where it goes. You know, I, ha- I have my family here, and so my family knows my testimony story, and they know that at the ages of 18, 19, I was involved in things that I could have gotten arrested for. I could have gone to jail for. And they have seen that the power of God's Word in my life has changed my reality, has given life where life was not at one point. 
God brings things alive that were not alive through the power of his word. And he makes that clear here at the beginning of Revelation. John is, is bearing witness to this reality. But also, I just think of John in this moment and what a gift this would have been. John at this point in history has already been boiled in oil and now he's been exiled to Patmos. Now, I don't want... The Bible doesn't make it explicitly clear, but that's a great moment for pastoral depression. I'm sure John was in depression. He is now in, boiled in oil and he's exiled and uh, on an island, all alone. How life-giving would this revelation have been to John? You actually can see it in shades of the Greek. The Greek by John in Revelation is different from his other books slightly because there's this kind of excited tone he has. I think of how he would have been a man in despair and yet through this new word, this new revelatory word of Christ, he has sprung to life once again in new ways. And then in the book of Revelation, we have in verse really 3 and looking at the first part of 4a, the first of seven Beatitudes that will be in this book. We think of the Beatitudes as something only in the Sermon on the Mount, but actually this book of Revelation has seven Beatitudes. Again, that number seven will come up again and again, that there is a blessing for the one who reads the words of this prophecy, but also blessings for those who hear and keep what is written in it. And, and that also brings us to something about Revelation. We've all had that moment in school where the teacher has asked us to set down a pencil or a pen and just listen. Revelation is asking us to listen to it. Not to examine it and create a big grid and to, to try to figure out every little detail. It's asking us to sit and listen to it. Now, when your teacher would do that in school, was your teacher trying to get, get you to understand a very specific kind of argument or usually trying to get you to understand a bigger picture? where the teacher would tell you to set down that pen, set down that pencil. They were trying to give you a bigger picture, a bigger understanding. In one sense, the Apostle John is saying in this moment, Asian churches, churches, the fullness of churches, set down your pen at the moment and just let the word of this letter wash over you. Let it give you comfort. Let it give you peace. Don't, don't get caught up in trying to overly figure it out. But let the Word of God convey life to you. Because all these churches will be found struggling with different kinds of issues. Actually, the Philadelphia church, not Philadelphia down there, but the Philadelphia church will be the best of it all. But they'll have different struggles at the very beginning of the letter that they're dealing with. And that number is representative of the larger idea of the churches that follow Christ. And John is saying... Just let the truth, the overarching reality of the message of this book wash over you and bless you and give you comfort and peace. And what is that better message? It's that we're okay. Jesus has gone before us in victory, and, the, and, so, and we, so we will prevail with Jesus over evil. What did these churches need to hear in the waning era of the apostolic age nearly 2,000 years ago that they were going to be okay, that Jesus had gone before them in victory, and that the faithful through Jesus would be able to prevail over evil. What do we need to hear in 2021? That we're okay, that Jesus has gone before us in victory, 
and that through Christ, the faithful will prevail. Put your pencil down. Put away the anxiety. Crush your doubts. Lay waste to your fears. You're okay. Jesus has gone before you and secured the victory. Because Jesus has revealed that he is the victor over all history, over all governments, over all powers, over all forces of evil. The toughest thing I see 18 months into COVID is how many Christians that have not remembered the fact that in this very hard moment in history, and yet in every hard moment in history we will face as Christians, God says, rest at ease, I have all of history in my hand, and so you're okay. All right. I think one of the pages. I lost my place, but that's okay. I needed to break. It's okay. God has control over all history and even this sermon. And he's saying, move forward. All right. Then we get to the interesting second half of verse 4. And, oh, nope, I need to go back. All right. Then we get to verses 4b to 6. And we have John in this section giving a Trinitarian greeting. Now, with how verse 4 is written, John writes, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That is actually a reference at that moment to God the Father. This will also carry over to verse 8. That is God the Father speaking to us, the church. What God is trying to make clear is that the Father has now spoken to us through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have a Father who cares for us in heaven. And first, first and foremost, a good father makes sure his children are not spiritually neglected. Or this is why, for instance, in the book of Proverbs, in that great piece of wisdom, it uses the idea of the perfect father showing the folly and the good things of the world to the son, to the child, and allowing that child to grow in wisdom and understanding of how to wisely live in the world. So Revelation at its start is reminding us, child of God, you have a Father in heaven who watches over you, that you can cry out to in need, who has arranged the events of your life for your ultimate spiritual good. His love is comprehensive, and he hasn't failed to understand all the events that will take place, both in the past and the present and the future. While Scripture will offer plenty of fatherly failures, from Adam to David to um, Jacob and elsewhere. Our Father in heaven is not like that. God doesn't fail to protect those who are his true children. Then we have an interesting second half of verse 4, where seven spirits are mentioned before the Father's throne. But let me explain this by way of illustration. If I were to say, who is Emmanuel? Who is Emmanuel? You can say it loud. Jesus, okay. You know, it's a hot day. You're, you're in the, not in the shade, most of you, so you're boiling up. So yeah, you've got to at least speak. Uh, who's the Prince of Peace? Jesus, okay. So we know this understanding with Jesus. I even have a, a picture that offers a lot of the names of Jesus in uh, the Bible that is up in my house. But this is also in this moment where we're talking about the seven spirits before the throne of God and we know that Revelation uses seven for completeness and wholeness, this is the Holy Spirit that's being talked about. This is the fullness of the Holy Spirit that's before the throne of God. And what John is making clear through this Trinitarian 
moment is that the fullness of the Holy Spirit watches over you, Christian, as well. We talk about our security of salvation as Christians, not because of ourselves. We know that in ourselves we are sinful and that we are not worthy, but really we root that security in the doctrine of God. Really, in the work of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son, that our triune God has such a comprehensive understanding of history, of time, such a powerful, almighty control over it all, and so that He watches over us. He ant- and so the Holy Spirit anticipates and understands every need we have before the throne of God. This is why, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it gives us that description of the Holy Spirit that as our groans go up to God, that the Holy Spirit perfects our prayers. That in one sense, the Holy Spirit uh, makes our prayers something that if we knew and understood all the things that God knows, that we would be asking for the right thing. He perfects them. So remember, you have the full power of the Holy Spirit watching over you. John wants to John is being made witness to in the revelation of Jesus to give you both grace and peace, all the grace and the peace that you need and long for in order to endure. Then we get to the final person of the triune God of Scripture, Jesus. And Jesus is first described as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. A faithful witness to what? First off, that the truth of God's promises and God's words have actually been fulfilled. But there's also other elements to this as well. The idea of the faithful witness is connected to the firstborn from the dead. What are these seven churches in Asia starting to endure? They're starting to endure trial to being killed in the persecutions of the church of early Rome that will last for hundreds of years. And so, connected to this idea is the fact that Jesus is a witness to the ultimate question, is there life after death? You know, there are other moments in Scripture where people are raised from the dead. Jesus does it several times in the Gospels. Uh, Elijah does it. And yet, those resurrections, they were made to die again. I often have wondered, though, for instance, Lazarus, and the second time he died, I'm guessing it was a lot different than the first time he died. He probably was, you know, I've been through this before. I know what happens. I'm okay. So there's this reality here that what Paul is saying is that there's very little to fear about what can transpire because we've seen the resurrection of Christ. It's like that amusement park ride that the first time you ride it, you're scared, and then it wasn't that bad anymore. And, and now you, um, you can understand through seeing someone else go that you're going to be okay. Christ's body, his living, his dying, his resurrection has made clear we have nothing to fear. So our God has prepared a path for us, a comprehensive walk, and we must walk that path from this life to the next. And what has our triune God made us into? He's made us a kingdom of priests to our God and Father. Verses like this one are, um, and are frequently used throughout the New Testament. It's why we, as Protestants, believe in the priesthood of all believers, that What could priests do in the Old Testament? That if a faithful priest could bring an offering to God and God would accept the offering. 
And we know through the book of Hebrews that it was nothing about the sacrifice of a, a bull or a goat that was special to God. It was that it was done in faith. And so we now all being priests in the New Testament church, what does it mean for us? Well, God has clearly, and the Hebrews makes clear, ended the sacrificial system through Christ. We still can make offerings to our Father. And what do we do? It's, it's in our works. It's in doing little good things. But doing little good things is kind of like the refrigerator art of a toddler. You know, when the toddler presents a father with refrigerator art, and my kids, you know, they're, they, they have better hand-eye dexterity these days, and so they do better drawings, but it's like squiggly lines in a blob, and you go, oh yeah, that's so cute, that's beautiful, let me put that on my fridge. And there's a sense in which we now get to do that. We get to do that because the work of Christ is so great and so glorious and that the Father gets so excited that we get excited about the work of His Son, that when we follow in steps and we try and we strive to look like Him and to, to do works in His image, that we become like the refrigerator art of God that can be stuck on the, the fridge and our Father likes that offering. He likes those offerings. He takes pleasure in it. It's not that our drawing saves us, but he delights in it. We are a kingdom of priests. Our scribbles, our misshapen blobs are appreciated by God. All right. And now the final two verses as you guys melt in the sun. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What this verse tells us is there is no escaping the ultimate reality of there being a God whom all people will have to stand before in judgment. I know I have talked to people in their 90s and, and people who reach even close to 100, and you ask them, did you feel like your life went by quickly, or it was a long time that you lived? And I have yet to meet somebody who says, oh, you know, life just dragged on. They always talk about the fleeting nature of life. And so there is this reality here, while people will foolishly, think, oh, I can put off God, I can put aside, that, that, that I can just live carefree for the reality of the advent of Jesus Christ. Soon a day will come when we will all be able, we will all be made to face the ultimate reality that Jesus is king. That Jesus and that our triune God had made an offering for us, a gracious offering given in love for us to have relationship with him. Yet if we reject him, he will not sit idly by forever. So let us not test his patience. And then we have God the Father speaking to us in the very last verse of our passage. Remember how in the Gospels there's these moments where, you know, Jesus is baptized. Jesus is on the Mount Transfiguration. And there's these moments where the Father speaks from heaven and his voice booms down, you know, this is my son. Well, now, Jesus, I mean, the Father is now speaking directly to us through the work of Jesus. He speaks to us directly. And he says at the beginning of this letter, I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
the Lord God says, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so the word of our Father, who art in heaven, wants to directly say to you and I this morning is, I have control, both over the beginning and the end of all things. I am the God of the past, the present, and the future. In all moments of time, I am the Almighty God. So to all Christians, whether you're a follower of Christ back in the Roman Empire or the Middle Ages or you're a follower of Christ today, I have control over all of it. And as your father, uh, I love you. And so remember that. Let that good word wash over you, give you strength and give you courage as you prepare to face whatever trials you will be made to face in this life. I'm your dad who now speaks directly to you because of what my son accomplished. And so receive my spirit uh, talking to you this morning, which states, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, because I have loved you with an everlasting love. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that here we are in Waxhaw, Pennsylvania, outside, and yet we have access to the throne room of heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that gift that was made and accomplished for us through the sacrificial work of the firstborn of all creation, the one who rose from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, to a body imperishable and everlasting. We thank you that we have access, not just in worship, but on all our days, to talk directly to you and to know that in every trial, in every difficulty, in every hardship, you are there with us, leading us, guiding us, and making straight our paths. We praise you for the gift of the salvation which you bring through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.